it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, February 28, 2023, the final day of this short month. It's the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, broadcasting today from Orange County, California. Beautiful out here, despite some of the insane politics in California. Very glad to have you all on board. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And then if you miss any of the live broadcast, we have a podcast for that. On demand, totally free, 24-7 after the show is over, of course. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here is the lineup that we have in store for you on the Tuesday edition. Joe Concha will be joining us later on this hour, talking about the media, COVID, COVID origins, quote-unquote misinformation. And would you believe it, some of the late-night comedians are now attacking the Department of Energy, telling them to stay in their lane, calling into question their conclusion that the virus likely emerged from a lab. Okay, we'll get Joe's reaction to that. Andy McCarthy will be here as well in the next hour. Big Supreme Court case today, oral arguments in Washington, D.C., over the student loan bailout scheme from the Biden administration, which is terrible policy on its face, but also, in my view, flatly illegal. I'm not alone in that view. We'll see if the justices agree. We'll get Andy's take. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, recently got back from Taiwan. He's the chairman on this new House committee on combating the China threat. We'll ask him about what he saw in Taiwan, what he learned. A lot to get to on the China front. That's in our middle hour. And in our final hour today, Josh Holmes of the Ruthless Podcast, longtime aide to Senator Mitch McConnell. He will be here. Always a fun conversation with Josh. That is all ahead on today's show. I want to start with this because I've seen... A number of polls in the last few days, and again, all of this stuff, as I've been saying for months and will continue to say for months, but all of the polling is ludicrously early. But if you follow this stuff, which I do, there have been about half a dozen surveys of Republican voters nationwide that show Donald Trump clearly in the lead for the Republican nomination in 2024. He has gained ground since the last batch of polling maybe a month ago. And I think there's probably a few reasons for that. He, of course, went to East Palestine, got a lot of attention for that. I think that was a good move on his part. Also, with Joe Biden and the administration flailing on multiple fronts, I think a lot of Republican voters sort of reflexively go in their minds back to the last guy with that juxtaposition, benefiting Trump. Now, is that sustainable? Is Trump's, let's say, 20-point lead in the Republican primary in some of these national polls insurmountable? I don't think so, especially since there's only three people in the race. It's Trump, it's Nikki Haley, who's in the mid-single digits, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who's, with all respect to him, just a rounding error in the polls. I think he's at 0%. Could things change when more people get in? That's one of the big questions. Now, 
the biggest name that has yet to decide, at least officially or publicly, one way or the other, that people are waiting on is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And because we are watching his moves pretty closely and we're not alone, I wanted to bring you a few updates involving DeSantis that I think are at least, shall we say, interesting, intriguing. He's out with a new book. He's on a book tour where he is giving a number of interviews, including one over the weekend with Mark Levin, the full hour on that Fox News weekend program. And the book is called The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival, which kind of sounds like more or less a national campaign theme, basically saying this is what we did in Florida. Here's how we won in Florida, and you can broadly define winning when it comes to DeSantis and his agenda. And here's how it's a blueprint for America's revival. Right? If you were going to be running for president from the position of Ron DeSantis, it would make all the sense in the world to have a book like this that would be effectively a roadmap for your campaign and the way that you would present yourself to voters. That book hit number one on the top 100 list of Amazon's bestsellers, like basically instantaneously, a lot of interest in the 44-year-old governor of Florida. Now, you might be wondering, okay, how extensive is the book tour? Well, he's giving some interviews. Brian Kilmeade had him on earlier. But where's he going? Seems like he'll hit a few different spots, including this. This is from the New York Times. DeSantis is tentatively expected to appear in Iowa during the first half of March, making stops in Davenport and Des Moines, according to people briefed on his schedule. Shortly after, he's expected to appear in Nevada, an early primary state, followed a few weeks later by an expected trip to Manchester, New Hampshire. An appearance in South Carolina is also being discussed, according to people briefed. I mean... You don't need me to tell you what that might mean. Now, they could be leaving off some of the other stops that they have in mind in places that aren't exactly early primary states that you associate with a presidential campaign. DeSantis, for example, was recently in Illinois and New York for law enforcement events. And then, helpfully, shortly thereafter, a two-time convicted murderer denounced him right before getting executed in Florida. That was quite a side-by-side, sort of split screen on those issues for the governor. But I wouldn't necessarily call this subtle. Iowa, then Nevada, then New Hampshire. And, oh, by the way, taking a look at South Carolina, I think the breadcrumbs speak for themselves. Now, I have no special knowledge, as I keep saying, about whether he's going to run or not going to run. Having met him and spent some extensive time with him last year, and I'm probably going to see him this coming weekend, by the way. I'm going to be in Florida. Not explicitly to see him, but I think we'll be at the same event. But having spent a couple hours with him and talked about a few things and talked through a few things with him, my guess is he's inclined to run. And if he were running, I'm not sure why he would be acting any differently than he is right now. Right, trying to rack up wins legislatively in Florida during the session, giving a national tour with certain states potentially prioritized, 
just to sell a book, putting out videos. We played you clips yesterday of one of the social media clips that his team put out that looked and sounded in every way like a presidential campaign video, but technically isn't. It would seem like he is very much on that path. And that's why Donald Trump, I think looking at the polling, sees him as by far the biggest threat to his ability to win the nomination, hence the torrent of abuse and nicknames and attacks, a lot of which are just garbage, in my view, coming from Trump against DeSantis, preemptively. By the way, based on the reviews that I've read, DeSantis's new book does mention Trump multiple times and is generally very positive. So still, for now, you're not seeing those lines of contrast being drawn yet by DeSantis vis-a-vis Trump. And that also comes to the question that I posed earlier. If and when DeSantis jumps in, let's say June, and then the battle royale is really on, do the numbers move? Because they've already moved. Like, you know, DeSantis surges ahead and is having a moment, and then Trump has regain the lead at a pretty wide one at this stage. Do things move over the next couple months? I think things, to some extent, are fluid. But once someone actually enters the race and starts building a case for himself and against others, then what? Then, of course, you start having the debates over the summer looking like August, right? There's a long way to go here. But this is almost like a proto-shadow campaign that we're seeing from DeSantis right now. And I would be willing to bet that his team is probably not just looking at the national numbers, where Trump is, you know, in the high 30s all the way up to the low 50s, depending on what poll you look at. And DeSantis is trailing by double digits. And then everyone else way below that. Right, it falls off a cliff after DeSantis to like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley in the mid to high single digits. But I think they're probably also looking at state-level polls. There have been some, for example, in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Florida, of course, that have shown DeSantis strong in those states, if not leading. I saw a primary poll in California, where I am right now, DeSantis leading Trump. Michigan, DeSantis leading Trump. So there's also, down the line, the potential for a bandwagon effect where people start to see someone as a plausible nominee. Maybe they start racking up wins. Maybe they start racking up big endorsements and building excitement. And then sort of the top of mind, universal name recognition, last guy, benefit that Trump has starts to erode, fade, go away. Or maybe not. That's one of the risks that DeSantis would have to take if he decides to take this plunge. But again, All of his behavior at the moment would suggest that's the direction that he's headed. I want to play for you a couple sound bites from his interview with Mark Levin on Life, Liberty, and Levin on Sunday. And Levin asked him about this book, why he wrote the book. And I'm reading between the lines. Again, I don't think it's anything other than blatantly obvious. So I'm just stating it out loud. But DeSantis has to frame it a little bit differently, at least for now. So here's his answer to the, why did you write this book in Cut 26? Well, you know, Mark, over these last few years, Florida has really represented freedom in the United States. And we've seen that with a number of people, unprecedented number of people that have picked up their lives from a lot of these failing states governed by leftist politics, and they've come to Florida. And so they've told me 
just how glad they are, be, are to be in Florida. Uh, you've seen other states that have uh, followed Florida and done well, others that haven't and done poorly. But people would always say to me, you know, I just wish our country would be doing what Florida is doing, that Florida really shows American principles put into action with courage and conviction can work. And so what we talk about is a lot of the stuff that we encountered coming into office, a lot of the issues that we tackled, uh, but then kind of where the dividing lines are uh, in current American society and how I think we have the best arguments for the direction that not only states but the country should go in. But the country should go in. This is no longer about a re-election campaign. Been there, done that, massive blowout win. This seems to be about eyes being on a much bigger prize. And DeSantis, I keep talking about how he's got the scoreboard argument across a number of different fronts, including the electoral achievement that he pulled off just a few months ago. Here he is basically pointing at the scoreboard with Levin in Cut 27. I got reelected November 2022, largest uh, vote than any Republican governor in Florida history has got, largest vote margin any governor candidate's ever got, 1.5 million votes. I can win by 1.5 million votes, make the Democratic Party in, in, in our state basically a, a rotten carcass on the side of the street. And yet the left can still impose their agenda on my people if I'm not looking after fighting ESG and, and other woke companies and some of the stuff going on in the universities and the schools. And so I think I have an understanding that these fights are far broader than just one particular election. Yes, you do have to fight the woke in the halls of government and in legislative chambers. And we have super majorities as Republicans of Florida, so we will win all those fights. But you also have to be willing to defend your folks against this agenda being shoved down their throat from all these other institutions where these people aren't necessarily coming up for elections. And in many cases, they're not at all, right? These are bureaucrats or these are powerful corporate interests. And he's right about that, right? Republicans can win big, clear majorities with governing mandates, with people, for example, in Florida saying overwhelmingly, yes, we like what we're seeing. And the institutions that the left has captured or are seeking to capture, they don't care. They don't care about the outcome of those elections. They don't care what the people actually want. They've got their agenda. They're going to push it, and they're going to push it until they're stopped. And what DeSantis is saying is we're stopping them, ever vigilant. Now, does that sometimes go too far? Right? I think overall he's done a great job in Florida for all the obvious reasons, the whole Disney flare-up has caused controversy. Is this retaliation? Is this government overreach? DeSantis addressed the Disney question in the same interview. I want to play you that soundbite when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting going from Southern California today. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. I'm Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Just one more clip from this DeSantis interview on Sunday with Mark Levin. I just think it's interesting in light of some of the developments that I mentioned in the last segment. DeSantis 
having written this book, now going on a book tour, the stops that his team allegedly has selected from New Hampshire to Iowa to Nevada, maybe South Carolina, like, okay, what's going on here? And one of the questions that Levin asked him pertains to Disney and the bill signed just this week that revokes a bunch of special privileges that Disney had for many years in Disney World. They call it the corporate kingdom. That's what DeSantis has called it. They've ended it, and they've reached a new status quo for Disney. And some critics say, well, this is retaliation because Disney sided with left-wing activists on the so-called misnamed Don't Say Gay push. That's not what the bill actually was. I've gotten into all of that in great detail on this show, including questions that I asked DeSantis about it. Disney took sides. Their former CEO apparently didn't want to. He privately told DeSantis he didn't want to, but he felt all this pressure from inside the company, so Disney took sides. That's what DeSantis alleges in the new book. And now the state of Florida said, okay, if you're going to come after us this way and you're going to fight our governing agenda, we're going to remind you who's in charge here and the special privileges that you guys have. Well, guess what? They don't apply anymore. Here's DeSantis talking about that decision in Cut 28. So you talk about things with, like, the young kids and, and with Disney. And I see that not just through the eyes of a governor, but also through the eyes of a dad. You know, we have a six, a four, and a two-year-old at home, and we just believe as parents we should be able to send our kids to school, have them watch cartoons without having somebody's sexual agenda shoved down their throats. And so when this issue came up uh, with the sexualization of the curriculum, of course in Florida we think that that's inappropriate. And you know what? Republican, Democrat, independent parents agree with us overwhelmingly, but this was something that the left tried to spin up, the media tried to spin up, and then Disney, I think mistakenly, uh, got involved with that. And you know what? The left was smart to try to pressure Disney because for 60 years in the state of Florida, they have gotten every single thing they want uh, from the state of Florida until I became governor. And we said, no, you're not running the state of Florida. We're running the state of Florida. Whether you think that that's overreach, he's clearly just directly linking these two things. I think voters will have to make that determination. DeSantis clearly planting his flag on this call. And we'll see how Republican voters react if he jumps in to this broader fight, which it seems more and more likely that he's probably going to do at some point. Just a guess. Not exactly out there on a huge limb, I would say. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Joe Concha joins us next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back from California today. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free, on demand every day. With us now, Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill, author of the book, Come On, Man. And Joe, good to have you here. 
Did you go all the way to California, say the Los Angeles area, and you wake up and it's in the 40s, you're like, oh, come on, I flew five hours for this? Yeah, it is pretty chilly here. I stepped off the plane. I was like, hang on. I thought I was supposed to be in warmer weather. In fact, we were talking about this just briefly on Gutfeld on Friday night, and Jimmy Fallon had a great joke. He was filling in for Greg. He said it's so cold in Southern California that Governor Newsom is urging Californians to relieve themselves indoors. <laughs> that is tremendous. It's uh, pretty good. But still, I'm looking at palm trees. I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean. It could be a lot worse. Joe, I do want to ask you about, first of all, just the story that dropped over the weekend. Wall Street Journal, COVID Origins, the U.S. Department of Energy. We'll get into the media and the hypocrisy and some of the pushback. But to me, I think for those of us who've been paying attention now for years, it's not exactly surprising at all that evidence and intelligence would point to a lab leak. But it seems like now it's finally officially fully in the now-it-can-be-said category, even though some people are still resisting it hard, I think, for ideological reasons. It just feels like it takes us a couple years to acknowledge truths in this country And I don't know what to attribute that to other than tribal politics. We're the the after-the-fact nation, right? So and our media helps uh, shape us into that particular portrayal. After the fact with Hunter Biden, 2020, thou shalt not speak about this right before the election, that it could be, I don't know, his laptop, his emails, influence peddling in China, Ukraine, Russia. You say that. It wasn't even like we could debate it, guy, right? Like, well, here's why I think it could be real, X, Y, Z. Anybody who said this, as we all talked about many, many times, on social media, that was censored, that was suppressed, that was dismissed, or it was mocked, or you were called a conspiracy theorist, right? I mean, we all remember what the New York Times said about Senator Tom Cotton. Senator Tom Cotton repeats fringe theory on coronavirus oranges, right? I mean, so you don't have Glenn Kessler, who's the Washington Post fact checker, supposedly, running onto Twitter to fact check Ted Cruz when he talked about how it could be a lab leak. And I always thought, Guy, that John Stewart had the best analogy around this, that if there was a chocolate outbreak in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where do you think it came from? Maybe the place that's making the chocolate, the chocolate factory. Coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China. Oh, there's a coronavirus lab there that studies this with gain of function. Probably that's my in first fact, suspect. In fact, just to jump in, we have the soundbite, John Stewart on Stephen Colbert's show. And this was a fascinating moment at the time. We talked about it at the time. We played the sound bites because Stewart was just making common sense and doing so in kind of a funny way. And you could tell Colbert was very uncomfortable with it because this is not what members of the tribe were supposed to say because it was sort of agreeing with the bad people. But here was Stewart, cut 19, just to remind people. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, wait, okay, a, wait, okay. A, wait a second. Wait a what about this? What about this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or 
It's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. So the crowd is laughing and applauding in the background. Colbert is trying to sort of guide the conversation in a different direction. But here we are now, Joe. It's 2023. There's another significant development that pushes us closer to what I think is the probable theory at this point. And yet there are still some people resisting it for some reason. Including Stephen Colbert last night. Who, who said, hey, stay in your lane when he was talking uh, about the department that came to this conclusion, right? And it's like, it's funny, Stephen Colbert, you're telling somebody to stay in your lane? <laughs> that's, right, you're a late-night comedian. With, with all respect to Stephen Colbert, seems like a smart enough guy. Obviously, he does sort of left-wing clapter stuff every night. But the U.S. Department of Energy, and this might be maybe born out of ignorance on his part, the Wall Street Journal story that I referenced, Joe, mentioned why the Department of Energy and their conclusion is so significant. It's not like Pete Buttigieg and the Department of Transportation came out with a one-pager saying, yeah, we feel like maybe this is what happened. The Energy Department was citing new intelligence, and they oversee U.S. labs in this realm. This is actually very much their lane, and yet you have a late-night comedian lecturing them to stay in their lane to protect some narrative about a naturally occurring virus where there's no proof for that, but there seems to be growing evidence in the other direction. I just don't understand. Like, with the Hunter Biden laptop story that you mentioned, Joe, I at least understand why the left and why the Democratic Party and why the media would suppress that story and engage in censorship. I'm not defending it. It's it's a scandal that they did it. But I can understand there was an election to be won, they didn't want a repeat of Hillary 2016. They were scared to death of losing another election. And so they pulled out all the stops for their domestic political agenda and their preferred political party. But in this case, we're talking about a massive pandemic that killed millions of people around the world, uprooted the lives and massively disrupted the lives and well-being of billions of people around the world, and getting to the bottom of how and where that disease started, especially if it didn't happen naturally, seems like something almost everyone outside of the CCP Politburo should be able to agree on. And yet you've got this like narrative protection worship going on from guys like Colbert, which is not as obvious to me what the motive is here. I think it's to keep people scared, perhaps, Guy. If you look at Stephen Colbert's audience when they actually show a shot of them, they're all still in masks. I mean, it's remarkable. And, and one of the findings that, that, that we're now uh, learning, and I, I could have told you this two or three years ago because my wife is, is a doctor. You've met her. And she, she just kind of laughed at cotton masks having any sort of real impact. Like she said, yeah, an N95 mask can protect you from viruses. But the way particularly children wear a cotton mask, it's below their nose, it's loose on their face, it may have actually led to people getting the virus more than actually protecting them. These are all things that we're learning now. But in Colbert's case, I guess he just doesn't want to be shown that he's wrong because that Stewart clip that you just played is making the rounds. And what people don't show is after uh, John finished with his whole chocolate factory analogy, then Stephen says, 
hey, have you been hanging out too long with Senator Ron Johnson? In other words, you're also crazy, John Stewart, the person who gave me my career. And now Stewart's saying today that after he said that, he was actually called alt-right and racist against Asian people. John friggin' Stewart (laughs) even tried to get canceled. That's when you know. But he said it two years ago. It was June 15th, I believe, of 2021. And that was before it was fashionable for anybody to do it. And that's why Stewart always has my respect, whether it be what he did for uh, the responders to 9-11 or just he's not afraid, just like Bill Maher, not afraid to go against the tribe, the group think, and share what's on his mind, particularly when it's logical. Too bad we have too many people in media that are scared to do the same thing on other cable news networks because we don't want to offend anybody. Uh-huh. Maybe just be honest. That, that That's a novel thought, isn't it? You know, Joe, you were just saying something that maybe Colbert and others don't want to admit that they were wrong. That makes sense. I mean, no one really likes to be wrong. They don't like to admit it. I think you and I are probably in that same camp. When we get things wrong, it's not exactly fun to be wrong and have to come out and say, okay, yep, I got that one. Incorrect. Sorry. My bad. It's not something that people like to do. I just think it goes beyond that because what's at stake, like the truth about what happened with COVID should transcend any of that, right? A deadly pandemic that wreaks so much havoc and death and destruction. You know, there was a lot of, fog of war, early days, people were wrong about a lot of things. I think the key was recognizing that the data was moving in a different direction and that the evidence maybe wasn't backing up your previous conceptions and then adjusting and adapting. That's what I think honest people should have done during the pandemic. A lot of people did. A lot of people wouldn't, though, and resisted. And my suspicion, once you said that, Joe, is it's less about People in the Colbert camp, not just to pick on him, because I saw at Comedy Central, Hassan Minaj was also mocking the energy department like, oh, yeah, let's wait for the DMV to weigh in before we can decide. Like there's any application there, like there's any comparison there. It's just it's a weird tick where they're all now. It's like the memo went out. All right. We're attacking Biden's Department of Energy now. They're in on the racist conspiracy theory. I think what this comes down to is they are okay being wrong, but they cannot handle the proposition that the bad people on the other side were actually right. The people that they were calling conspiracy-minded, misinformation-peddling, insensitive racists, they cannot bring themselves to admit that the Tom Cottons and Ted Cruz's and, yes, Donald Trump's and Ron DeSantis's of the world broadly speaking on COVID, were right on a bunch of stuff that they were wrong about in such high dudgeon, I think that it would be easier for them to admit they were wrong if that didn't at least by definition mean that people who should never be right were in fact right. I think that's what they can't swallow. And it's not just in this case with the COVID lab leak guy. Think about Russia collusion, for example, right? Three years of the Trump presidency. Or just mask, mask mandates and natural immunity. I mean, we could stay in the lane, so to speak, on COVID. Yeah. Or, yeah, to the Russia collusion story, to the Hunter Biden laptop story. There are applications of this same lesson kind of all over the place, littering our political discourse over the last roughly six years. And you talked about the memo that goes out. There's always a memo that goes out. And the memo went out, for example, just to use a recent news event, East Palestine, right, where the the Treasury Secretary didn't even acknowledge it happened, right, for chemical-causing 
uh, toxins going into the air and water in that area for 10 days. And then for, it took him nearly three weeks to actually go visit Transportation. The United Transportation States. Secretary. Tra- di- oh, I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. You said Treasury. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to take shots at Yellen, too. But in this case, it's <laughs> Right. Where was she in all this? Uh, the <laughs> Transportation Secretary. Thank you. And then suddenly this, this narrative just kind of it forms on social media. And then the usual suspects grab it and go and say, actually, you know what? What happened in East Palestine was Trump's fault. It's the but Trump argument because he cut regulations. And if he didn't cut those regulations, then that train crash never would have occurred. Except we know now that the regulations, A, had nothing to do with the train crash. And B, at last check, guy, I believe Democrats have had control of the Congress, Senate and Oval Office for the past two years. If those regulations are so horrible, I'm pretty sure they had a stack deck to make sure they could change them. But it's always the reflex that if something happens with this administration or Democrats in general, the but Trump argument always comes into play. And that memo goes out in these situations. So bottom line, what we see in East Palestine is people still don't trust what the government is telling them, maybe because of all the things we just talked about, that when the government or the media says something is absolutely true and then it proves not to be true, yep. trust in institutions may be dissipating at this point, Guy. Yeah, the, the trust well has been running dry, and unfortunately it's for good reason. It's self-inflicted. Last point that I want to get your reaction to, Joe, and I mentioned this yesterday. I've written about it a little bit at townhall.com. I've said it on TV as well. I feel like we are seeing more than ever because it's not new. Uh, this is this is a trope and a tactic that I'm sure you've identified many times, but it really feels like they're ramping it up. What journalists do is they want to make their opinion effectively, in the minds of Americans, factual. Mm-hmm. They want to conflate their agenda, their worldview, with scientific or empirical fact. But... They recognize that they can't just flat out editorialize in a newspaper story or what have you or a news package. So what they do is they outsource their opinion to a quote-unquote expert who agrees with them. And this happens over and over again where they just launder their own opinions through the mouth or the quotes of an expert who's a member of the tribe And that's how they just put their own beliefs out there as if it's news. It just seems like that's happening a ton. I'm seeing it everywhere these days. It's a nice little trick, isn't it, that you see on the front page of the Washington Post or or the New York Times? Analysis, right? And (laughs) it's a story, and it's called analysis, but analysis really means opinion, right? And and these so-called journalists, what they do is they'll go out and find experts, uh, people in a certain field they know already just by reading their Twitter feeds is going to give them what they need to shape a narrative. So Mm -hmm. then they're presented as experts instead of actually – both sides being presented in a certain situation. And I'll leave it here, Guy. Pew Research uh, had this interesting poll of journalists last year, and they said, or the question was, should both sides be covered equally? And 55% of journalists, those who call themselves journalists, so not opinion people, not pundits, but journalists, think that both sides should not be presented. And then they asked the American public uh, what they thought, and only 22%, less than one in four, said, no, that's not right. Of course you should have both sides. So that's the way journalists see the world at this point, that they are here to save democracy they are on a higher moral plane and if they can protect americans news consumers from the evil people i.e people with r's next to their names then that's what they think their job description is right because journalists because they shouldn't guy. they shouldn't allow both sides to be presented when there's just a truth for example 
The Hunter Biden laptop is disinformation from Russia. For example, mask mandates work. For example, natural immunity doesn't matter when it comes to public policy. For example, COVID started naturally in a wet market somewhere. For example, the Russian government and the Trump campaign colluded to win the election in 2016. For example, dot, dot, dot. These are the facts. These are the truths that they believe are so important that the other side shouldn't be presented. And they truly believe that's what journalism is. And the results are what they are. And you can look at where credibility is for the press in the toilet. They've earned that. And I saw an analysis just this week where they went through and ran an algorithm, basically, on journalists' Twitter feeds. And based on that, they did sort of like this arc of where it was a bell curve of where journalist ideology lies. And the center of the bell curve among journalists was to the left politically of Bernie Sanders. Oh God. Which, if you look at the work that they do, seems to check out. we got to leave it there for now, Joe Concha. Fox News contributor, his book is Come On, Man. Joe, always appreciate your time. Thank you. And have Christine send me that story you just referenced because <laughs> I want to read about this more. It's wild. Thanks, Guy. You bet. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Interesting story in Politico. There's a lot of attention paid to the passing of the torch among congressional Democrats in the House, a new generation of leadership. But the older generation of leadership, they haven't retired. They're still around. And so here's the headline. Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn have stepped down, but not aside. House Democrats' longtime top three leaders may have ceded power, but not the presence they bring to the caucus. Story says Nancy Pelosi's office still sends emails from Speaker Pelosi. Lawmakers fretted about Steny Hoyer potentially bigfooting certain committee leaders. And Jim Clyburn took a new position in leadership rather than leave it entirely. House Democrats have experienced some growing pains as their old guard of leaders hang on, supporting their successors but not totally letting go. Lawmakers insist it's working in its own weird way. One Michigan Democrat saying it's almost like having two popes. That's kind of an interesting one. But there might be a new generation of leadership forward facing. But it sounds like some of the strings are still being pulled behind the scenes by Nancy and company. Just interesting. See how long that's viable. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Andy McCarthy, when we return, stay with us. City in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour is here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson from Southern California, Orange County today. We appreciate you being here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Of course, there's a free podcast when the show is over. Should you miss a moment, as we air live. We encourage listening during our airtime, of course. But there's a podcast if you can't. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is free of charge, on demand, every day. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Some bonus content there. Lots of goodies, a preview of our guests every day. You should check that out. Also, follow me on those same platforms if you want to, on my personal account, at Guy P. Benson. With us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, 
author of multiple best-selling books, and most importantly, famed guest host on The Guy Benson Show. And, Andy, it's good to have you back here. Guy, it's great to be back, and it was great to be with your team. who made it um, a very easy, uh, easy, very easy sledding. Well, I'll tell you, the reviews were very positive. People really enjoyed your stint guest hosting. The team loved working with you. And so applause all around. So congratulations. Really appreciate you taking that time. I know it's not exactly something that you do all the time, like your comfort zone, but you acquitted yourself apparently very well, and I'm grateful. Well, Guy, it was a delight to do it, and I appreciate being asked. All right, let's talk about the U.S. Supreme Court oral arguments today in this case of the uh, student loan bailout, sort of this scheme from the Biden administration. They are citing COVID as a national emergency and trying to draw on some 2003 law to justify this massive hundreds of billions of dollars in quote-unquote loan forgiveness for certain student borrowers who have debt and have accrued debt. And we've spent some time on this program laying out why, from a policy perspective, this is terrible policy. It is unfair. It is regressive. It is costly. It is inflationary. I mean, you can just keep going. All the reasons why I would be opposed to this sort of thing if Congress, for example, were debating whether to, quote unquote, forgive some of these student loans. But that's not what happened here. This was not Congress passing a law or considering a terribly ill-advised law. This is the executive branch trying to use a pen from the president of the United States to just wish away and wave off with a wand hundreds of billions of dollars worth of student loan debt. And there's a legal element here. That's what the Supreme Court has to decide. Is this whole proposition constitutional or not? And, Andy, I know that we've seen conservative critics say that it is flatly illegal. Bill Barr, for example, the former attorney general, was on this show months ago. He said, I mean, it's just clearly it's not even a close one. Illegal is what he said. But also former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was on the record within the last year or two saying, oh, no, the president doesn't have the authority to do that. Stop asking him to do that. He can't. Then he did it anyway. So even some of the legal scholars on the left who might like the policy are sort of saying, yeah, they're probably going to get their butts handed to them at the Supreme Court. And it seems like almost as though the legal arguments are secondary. I feel like this is a political fight the White House wants to have for their own reasons, which I think are flawed reasons. But For now, given your expertise and your legal background, let's focus on the law and the legality of this. What is your read? Well, I thought it was a a fascinating oral argument, which I listened to this morning. And the reason, Guy, it it, it hasn't been a route, as those of us who are opposed to this on policy grounds might have hoped. Uh, I, I think it's a tough case for the administration. It's one of these bizarre cases where everybody knows how the game should come out, but the question is whether the whether the teams are eligible to play. In other words, on the merits, I think that the argument is very strong that the administration doesn't have the authority to do this, uh, but the big impediment to the court deciding the case is whether the parties before them have standing. And my impression listening to the argument is that the administration is going to lose on the standing argument, which is its uh, stronger position. But it's not to say that it doesn't have any 
position on the merits. And what I what I thought this was very interesting as is kind of um, a civics lesson in the age of the administrative state, which is to say it's not exactly true to say that the statute don't permit uh, the uh, secretary of education to take this action. Um, what it is is an extravagant interpretation of the text that that Congress has set out. And the question here is, and, and really Chief Justice uh, Roberts hit on this the most, uh, he said when we invoke our new major questions doctrine, which is the, the one that uh, really he, I think, has singularly uh, pushed, uh, especially in the EPA case last year, um, what he's saying is, when the court invokes that, we're, we're conceding for argument's sake that the text may allow this to be done. But we're taking a step back in, in terms of our constitutional separation of powers and asking, uh, even, if you, even if this passes the textual test, um, is it such a shift in the, response, in the relationship between the citizen and the state or the relationship between the powers of the different branches of government? Uh, that it's that it's the kind of question that Congress should have been very specific in weighing in on. And that's really what this comes down to. Justice Kagan and others uh, have argued very strongly that the statutes and the regulations that the government is relying on uh, allow for the secretary to make an interpretation that would permit this kind of debt cancellation. And the other side of the court, the conservative side of the court, seems to be saying uh, – Either that's not true because the statute doesn't use the word cancellation. It uses words like modification. Uh, but more broadly, Roberts's point, which is even if we concede that this is within the broad confines of these statutes, uh, isn't it way, way a bridge too far for the executive branch to do this without Congress specifically weighing in? Because the original intent of the 03 law that they're using to try to bootstrap this whole thing from – I mean, was nowhere near the scope of what Biden has attempted here. What the chief justice said, Guy, was um, this isn't one of these cases where, you know, we forgive a little of this or we forgive a little of that. This is like nearly half a trillion dollars. And isn't that, as Justice Alito put it, let's pretend there is no um, no jurisprudence of these, you know, fundamental questions, this major question doctrine. If you just polled every member of Congress and said, uh, we're going to shift uh, half a trillion dollars of the economy now, do you think that's a major thing that Congress should weigh in on? Uh, probably to a person, everyone in Congress, uh, Democrat or Republican, uh, would have to acknowledge that was a major No, I'm not sure about policy. that. <laughs> I think you'd get a lot of Democrats saying, OK, well, what are we talking about? Where are the hundreds of billions of dollars, and who's doing it. And then I'll tell you whether I think it's a big deal that Congress should have a role in, because it seems like that's what Congress kind of does these days. And that's not just exclusive to the left. I think a lot of people on both sides in Congress would rather the courts and the executive just kind of pursue the outcomes that Congress should be pursuing, but often can't for various reasons. So they just are like, hey, let's outsource it to other people who can act more directly. I think there's a number of people in Congress who are more than happy to surrender uh, some or a lot of their power if the ideological outcomes are right. Yeah, well, that, that's a fair point. I think that Alito's point, which was made uh, 
better than I articulated it, was kind of like sight unseen. Let's say it, it, it could be $4 trillion or half a trillion dollars in debt forgiveness, or it could be half a trillion dollars away from social welfare programs toward, toward military spending. You're, not, you're a member of Congress. Right. You're not sure which side of this it is. All right. I'm telling you is it's $4 trillion or, or half a trillion dollars. What do you think? Is that major or not? Oh, and also going back to 2003, when the law was passed and had to do with, like, the war on terrorism, hey, is the point of this law to, quote-unquote, forgive half a trillion dollars worth of student debt decades from now because there was a pandemic? I mean, it is it is not even close to a direct line. And I tend to agree with you. I didn't listen to the oral arguments. I just saw some commentary on it. It seems like the correct side, from my viewpoint, is going to win. I would love Congress to go and tighten this up to clarify it as well, just to make it crystal clear after the court rules the way that it probably will. But I think probably a lot of Republicans in Congress would just sort of wash their hands and say, good, they got it done. They struck the thing down. I will point this out, though, Andy, just in terms of the way the media is covering it, seeing a lot of journalists and activists, and sometimes you really can't tell the difference between those two groups of people saying, oh, this would be horrible, and you would have uh, you know, conservatives suing to make people's lives harder, and it's so unfair, and they're using basically like class warfare arguments to try to cast the court in advance as the bad guys, I think they might want to rethink going down the class warfare path given who would bear the brunt of paying for this and who would benefit. It's sort of the opposite of the class warfare battle lines that the left likes to talk about. This would be disproportionately wealthier people benefiting from this giveaway that would be funded by working people who have no college debt, just grotesquely unfair, CNN has this tweet. This is from their official news main account on Twitter at CNN. The fate of Biden's student loan forgiveness program that would impact scores of borrowers from a wide array of colleges and socioeconomic backgrounds lies in the hands of nine relatively wealthy people who graduated from a short list of elite private schools. That's the way CNN, Andy, is trying to frame this thing. It's like the elite rich court versus the people, uh, I mean, that's not journalism. That's not, I think, accurate even, but that's the activism that we're seeing to try to set up a political fight that the left evidently thinks that they can win. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's obviously demagoguery, but it, it's also a gross mis- misrepresentation of the argument as it took place because what I think the members of the court uh, that CNN wants to – undermine in this way. The point that they were making during the oral argument was why these borrowers, that is to say student loan borrowers, and not other borrowers who, you know, made their arrangements in life, uh, either deciding not to get student loans or not to go to college uh, at all, uh, or to get student loans but work hard and pay them. Yep. Uh, so it didn't at or all. Or by the way, like I mean, you, be... I can also broaden it out. I would love for my mortgage to be forgiven. Why not? We went yeah, through hardships right. during during COVID. I signed a contract. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew what the interest rate was and all of that. I mean, why don't I get some justice here? You know, I, I think that 
that's the larger question. But on the student loans point, as you were getting into, I think the, the class warfare dynamic is really not what the left is trying to portray it as. It's very much a part of their base that would benefit from this, you know, college-educated plus overwhelmingly wealthier people. That is increasingly a lot of their electorate, but not everyone. And only 13% of Americans, roughly, hold this kind of debt at all, and yet everyone else would have to pay for this magic wand that they're trying to wave, I would say, clearly without the authority to do so. The court will ultimately decide that sometime soon. Arguments were today. Andy, before I let you go, just very quickly, I know that you've spent a lot of time recently in Chicago. You've gotten to know the city. There is an election today in Chicago, the mayor's race, likely to go to a runoff. But Lori Lightfoot, at least based on the polling and sort of the sentiment on the ground, could be in real trouble, might not even make the runoff. Seems to me like there's at least one candidate who would be a big improvement from her, at least one candidate who would be a step down from her. Do you have any overall thoughts on the Chicago race? Well, Guy, I say this with trepidation because I know this is a, this is really a, a city you know better than I do. But my impression here is that crime is an enormous issue. Yep. Uh, I think it's probably the defining issue as I as I see it. And Lori Lightfoot is deemed to be a complete failure on crime, which is the which is the day to day life issue that I think is most important to people. Uh, now, I, I think she's not going to make it in the runoff. Um, the question then, though, becomes is whatever replaces her going to be meaningfully better? And I'm not satisfied that that'll happen. As you say, there is a candidate, I think his name is Vallis, I believe, who, yep. who is deemed to be someone who could be stronger on crime. But, you know, I heard in New York a lot of hopeful talk that uh, Adams was going yep. to be better on crime. That's my thought exactly. And I didn't, believe, I, I didn't believe that at the time, and I don't think it's proven, you know, He's not de Blasio, but that doesn't make him meaningfully Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? Better than de Blasio is such a low bar. It doesn't mean that you're good. It doesn't mean that things are really improving. But, I mean, we can get to that point. Job number one is deciding in Chicago, does Lori Lightfoot deserve another term? And that is very much in jeopardy as voters go to the polls today. We'll be watching Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, always appreciate your time here. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Guy. Let's step aside, take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Trump administration repealed requirements for an electronic braking system because, according to them, the safety benefits were simply not worth the costs. Let me say that again. In 2017... The Trump administration decided to repeal requirements for brake upgrades because they didn't think the safety benefits were worth the cost. I think the people of East Palestine know exact, now know that that analysis was wrong and that they're suffering the consequences of rail companies putting profits over people. I'm Guy Benson. That was Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader on the floor yesterday, now picking up and running with this cobbled-together, belated, bogus talking point from the Biden administration, from Pete Buttigieg and company. It took them weeks to finally land on that excuse. Trump did it. The Republicans did it. Deregulation in 2017. 
It's just not accurate as it pertains to the derailment, to the accident that happened in East Palestine. The Washington Post's fact checker looked at the evidence and found that the regulations that were in place that were rolled back would not have applied to that train. So one has nothing to do with the other. There is no causal effect at all. And if there were, I think, smoking gun evidence, they probably would have come out of the chute with that immediately. But it took them a long time to come up with the spin because they were grasping at straws and having a very difficult political time based on their poor response. An NTSB official confirmed that this is not what caused the derailment. So Chuck Schumer and the administration and even the Washington Post editorial board seem to be missing the train, so to speak, and ignoring the evidence as laid out by the fact checker at the Washington Post and by the NTSB itself. So it's spin, it's a lie, but I guess it's what they're going with because they've got nothing else. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through this Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show from California today. Thank you very much for being here. I am Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand every day. And joining us now, Congressman Mike Gallagher, who is the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. He's a combat veteran, and he is back here on the program. Congressman, great to have you. It is great to be back. I want to start, Congressman, with your being back, literally, from overseas in the United States. You had a previously unannounced trip to Taiwan. What was the purpose of the trip? What did you see there? What did you learn? What should our listeners know? A few big takeaways. The biggest thing I heard across the board from Taiwanese leaders, from President Tsai to Vice President William Lai, to the defense minister across the board was the fact that the weapons that they've purchased and that have been approved by Congress but have not been delivered need to be delivered. We're talking a backlog of upwards of $19 billion worth of weapons. And so they're looking at what happened in Ukraine as a wake-up call. And the call suggests that they need to arm themselves to the teeth in order to prevent a PLA invasion of Taiwan, and we've been lecturing them for years to invest more in their defense in general and asymmetric defense in particular. Well, we need to deliver the asymmetric weapons that they've purchased. That's point one. Point two, we don't really have a robust economic and trade agenda. They like a free trade agreement. We're working on something called a 21st century trade agreement, which falls short of that. There's no double taxation agreement. You know, it's a long way of saying there's a lot more we can do to enhance our economic partnership. The third thing I'd say, and finally, is that they see the problem of Russia and China as interlinked. The leaders there talked about an increasing strategic convergence between Russia and China. Increasingly, Putin is Xi's junior partner in this alliance against the West. And so to try and separate these problem sets would be an analytical and geopolitical mistake. You know, Congressman, we've talked about this. I'm in favor of the U.S. helping and supporting the Ukrainians, partially for the reasons that you just laid out in that final bullet point. 
I do wonder, though, your first bullet point dealt with the backlog of weapons that the Taiwanese have purchased from us but have not been delivered yet. Might they be linked? Might we be sending so much stuff to Ukraine that we're dragging on Taiwan? Is that a concern? Well, the backlog predates Ukraine. So the javelins and stingers that the Taiwanese purchased date all the way back to 2015. So it's not a new problem. I'm willing to concede that for certain weapon systems, the crisis in Ukraine and what we're giving to Ukrainians has made the problem worse. But it's not the primary source of the problem, particularly when it comes to the one weapon system I think is most important, and that's a harpoon anti-ship missile. Uh, there's no real argument that Ukraine is getting in the way of that. Taiwan is, is, is lower in line, lower in priority than uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, when it comes to harpoon deliveries. There's some technical reasons why that is, but geopolitically, that makes no sense. We need to move Taiwan to the front of the line. We are also demailing, putting into deep storage uh, some of our own harpoon missiles. I've argued that we should just find a way to reconfigure them and give them to the Taiwanese. So I take your point, but I think there's a way to solve this problem. Ultimately, however, Ukraine has exposed the fragility and insufficiency of our defense industrial base. We just need to start making certain weapon systems at a more rapid rate, which we yep. just we haven't done in recent years. We just haven't done it. Yeah, we agree on that because it's not just about Ukraine's readiness or Taiwan's readiness. It's also about our readiness. And I think Americans should expect the U.S. government, the U.S. military, to be able to walk and chew gum and keep all the balls in the air, so to speak. And I know it's a challenge, but it's something that we should be able to meet, especially given the amount of money that we spend on these things as taxpayers every single year. Congressman, I do want to ask you there. I saw a report that there was at least some intelligence or indication that Chairman Xi had ordered his military to come up with a plan for taking Taiwan with an eye toward the year 2027. That seems awfully specific. It seems like huge intelligence to just sort of leak out there. Is there any credibility to that? Do you put any credence into that number, into that year? Where's that coming from? Well, I think that refers to uh, the director of the CIA saying something about Xi setting 2027 at the date, but that's actually not new information. Xi, a while ago, moved the date forward to 2027. That's the date he wants the PLA to be capable of taking Taiwan. But increasingly, many analysts um, and current high-level military officers like General Minahan, Admiral Davidson, um, and I would say I, I'm persuaded by this, think that it could happen sooner than that. I think we've entered the window of maximum danger and things get even more dangerous after the election in Taiwan in 2024. If Xi Jinping can't manipulate that election, if the DPP wins, perhaps he concludes he can't conquer Taiwan by political warfare. He can't win without fighting. And so he has to fight. In my mind, there's no question that Taiwan is his legacy issue. He's talked repeatedly about not wanting to pass this problem on to the next generation, about his willingness to take Taiwan by force if necessary. And if there's another lesson we can derive from Ukraine, it's that when brutal dictators tell you they're going to do something, even though it seems unthinkable from a Western perspective, we should probably pay attention to what they're telling us they're going to do. I agree with that, although I find it interesting that the argument would be he had put it out there at least somewhat publicly that there was this goal, right, shoot for the date of 2027 for the PLA to be ready by that point to take Taiwan. That would suggest just inherently that they're not ready and prepared to do so 
now, that they're not ready yet. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that's misdirection. What do you think? You know, we don't know is what I think. Uh, And I think we tend to discount the enormous risks that they're willing to take. There was a great article that came out by an analyst named Oriana Mastro called The Taiwan Temptation. And in it, she makes the case that if you went to Xi Jinping and you said, you can have Taiwan, but it's going to cost you your entire Navy, well, he would not hesitate to do it. They're far less sensitive to the loss of life, I think, than we are. There is also the risk that they could miscalculate. If you examine their propaganda, it's clear that they're sort of drinking their own bathwater. They feel like they're on the rise and we're on the decline. We have some significant budgetary challenges from a defense perspective in this decade. We have to pay for certain high-end items like the Columbia-class submarines. So, you know, the short answer is we don't know, but things get more difficult for Xi Jinping in the next decade, in the 2030s, which is why I think he's going to be more risk acceptance in this decade. Tell us about these primetime hearings, and it's this evening. What's the goal here? What are you trying to convey to the American people, and is the hope that with the timing there'll be more eyes on the issue? Are you kind of trying to introduce yourselves as a committee to the American people? Just give us a little roadmap there. Well, there's a practical reason behind the timing. In addition to wanting to you know, generate more interest and get more people to watch, it's so that other committee hearings don't interfere You know, I often find myself on a day like today where I have multiple committee hearings simultaneously. So we hope by doing it at night, the members will show up and more people will watch. What we're trying to accomplish is really to communicate to our colleagues and the American people why they should care about the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, why this is not a distant over their threat. This isn't just a threat to freedom in Taiwan. It's a threat to American sovereignty. And I'm not just talking about floating over our nuclear ICBM facility. You know, I'm talking about the CCP police stations that are we're seeing on American soil that are being used to harass and surveil uh, Chinese dissidents on American soil. I'm talking about the group of Chinese students I met with on Saturday that have been harassed and in some cases physically assaulted by CCP sympathizers. This is a global threat. It is an existential competition. So in this first hearing, we're trying to communicate both the nature of the threat and the stakes of the competition. And in my in my view... It's a question of what kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a world dominated by a techno-totalitarian surveillance state, or do we want to live in the free world where we're free from fear of transnational oppression and free to choose our own future? Since you invoked the spy balloon, you and I last spoke on the air while that was actively happening. Obviously, we eventually shot it down. We were told they weren't able to gather any intelligence. We were, in fact, able to gather intelligence off of this balloon before we took it down. Then we've recovered it. Then there were these other objects shot down that now they're basically saying, never mind. Those were just, you know, other balloons, not to worry. We couldn't recover them, but they posed no threat. Uh, What do you make of that whole episode? Are these very separate situations, the first giant spy balloon, then the subsequent three shoot-downs, and what are the lessons to be derived from at least the spy balloon episode, if not that whole sort of story arc? Here's what I think happened. Uh, The first incident was a Chinese spy balloon, and we were tracking it, but for reasons I still don't understand, we decided not to shoot it down. And I suspect, though I can't confirm this, that part of it was was because we didn't want to – 
uh, jeopardized Secretary of State Blinken's trip to China, which was subsequently postponed. And because that incident was so embarrassing for the administration and because there were so many unanswered questions, I think when it came to these other three incidents, we, we got a little bit trigger happy and shot down balloons that most likely were, you know, hobby balloons or research balloons. Uh, but that being said, I still don't know. And the Pentagon's still telling me we haven't recovered the debris. That just seems like the most plausible explanation. So what does this suggest? Well, one, it suggests we need to have a more well-developed standard operating procedure for taking care of things that are violating our airspace. Um, and NORAD's performance in this, in my opinion, was not up to par. And we need better explanations for what we are going to do when unknown objects, particularly those that are controlled by a hostile foreign power and collecting intel, are coming into our, air, into our airspace. We need to have a better standard operating procedures for that. The second thing I think would be interesting to know, but, but it'd be harder, is whether this was deliberately timed by Xi Jinping or elements of the Chinese Communist Party to embarrass us at the time our Secretary of State was going over to visit China. That would be understandable given their behavior in the past. They love doing stuff like this. They love probing. They love testing our limits. But right now, we just don't know if Xi Jinping was aware of it or deliberately timed the spy balloon to you know, send a signal that they can get away with this while the Secretary of State was visiting. Finally, Congressman, I do want to ask you about very big news in the last couple of days. The Biden administration's Department of Energy concluding that, in all likelihood, the COVID-19 pandemic did originate, after all, from a lab leak, something that was verboten among polite society for a long time. People were raked over the coals and called all sorts of names for simply floating that possibility, even though it always seemed entirely plausible, if not likely. And now we have at least another element of our government saying, yeah, that's probably the closest that we've got in terms of the evidence of what happened. They're citing new intelligence as informing uh, this announcement, this adjustment that they've made. There are still other people who are pushing back, fighting back, seemingly wedded to the notion that it didn't escape from a lab. I know the Chinese government is very much in that category, understandably, right? The CCP put out an angry statement accusing the U.S. of defaming them. Of course, they could have avoided the so-called defamation by just allowing a transparent investigation to occur. And they didn't want that to happen, I think, for reasons that should be obvious. But aside from the CCP, why is anyone in the West, why is anyone in America still clinging to this idea that it's like, you know, crazy or out of bounds or still, you know, not probable that this came from that lab in Wuhan. I just don't really understand that from an American perspective, although I get it from a CCP perspective. I think there are two things going on here. And you and I had multiple conversations, you know, going back two years about the fact that the lab leak hypothesis seemed more likely than the zoonotic origin hypothesis. And, yep. you know, like everyone that talked about it, we were derided as conspiracy theorists. And many were derided as racists for even suggesting it came from the lab, which is totally ridiculous. One, I think a lot of people that threw cold water on the lab leak uh, hypothesis and then and fed this broader narrative that any criticism of the CCP was somehow racist, um, just don't want to admit that they were wrong. Um, they have massive egg on their face, and they are unwilling to admit that they were wrong. There's a shamelessness in the legacy media in particular that I find appalling. The second thing is we have members of our scientific establishment, Fauci was perhaps the foremost example of this, that have built sort of mini empires around close collaboration with Chinese scientists when it comes to 
collecting naturally occurring coronaviruses and then doing dangerous experiments on them, what's called gain-of-function research. Right. And they definitely don't want to admit that they were wrong, and they don't want to jeopardize um, uh, research dollars. And yeah, the money. Giving grants to these same organizations like EcoHealth Alliance that were at the source of all this disinformation around the lab. Like, it's the definition of, of insanity. We need to cut off gain-of-function research. Yeah, no, I think that's probably right. Ego and politics on one hand, money, follow the money on the other. And the EcoHealth Alliance, by the way, one of the leaders that was very much part of the gravy train, famously wrote that email thanking Fauci for basically slapping down the lab leak theory because that kept his funding alive. That is something that I very much feel should continue to be looked into, and Fauci and others should answer for that. You know, paging Dr. Fauci, uh, another one of those moments based on new developments, new information, and apparently new intelligence. We've got to leave it there for now. Congressman Mike Gallagher, the committee hearing is tonight in prime time, the debut hearing of this China committee. And, Congressman, good luck tonight, and we'll be following it, and we hope to have you back in the very near future. Thank you, Guy. Always great to be with you. The Guy Benson Show is back after this very short break. Stay tuned, please. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We had mentioned a while back that some of the children's classics written by Roald Dahl, and I loved reading his stuff as a kid, they were being bodlerized. They were being edited and airbrushed long past the point of publication in order to align with today's woke societal standards. So they were changing the work of Roald Dahl and making edits for the new editions of the book to, I guess, placate people who found some of the original material problematic. And there was a pretty big hue and cry about that. And the publisher eventually backed down in the face of some pressure saying, okay, we're going to make both options available. The fake option with the edits to make sure people aren't offended or whatever. And then the original, the OG Roald Dahl version. And I hope that that version massively outsells this watered-down, ridiculous other version. Now we've learned that apparently they're going to do the same thing with the James Bond books, the James Bond novels, Ian Fleming, airbrushing out some insensitive verbiage and content for the newly published editions. I just find this incredibly creepy. Book banning is at least honest in its authoritarianism. It's right there in your face. You can't read this. Going back and changing books, like stealth editing books, to make them different from what the actual author wrote, I find that Orwellian and almost much creepier, honestly. No. Let's just say no to that. Let's be adults and understand that societal norms change and we shouldn't go and like backfill changes based on our changing and shifting standards. It shouldn't be controversial. And yet here we are fighting this fight on Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Oh, my goodness. Some of the statistics and anecdotes coming out of D.C. and crime out of control. What is the city council up to, meanwhile? We'll give you that side-by-side, the picture-in-picture. When we return, it's straight ahead. The 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Tuesday happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from Orange County, California today. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free when the show is over, just about an hour from now. That's on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on social media. The show is at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I am at Guy P. Benson on those same platforms, so shoot us a follow if you are interested. Later this hour, Josh Holmes is coming up. Perhaps he and I can raise a long drink together. Happy hour, sponsored by our friends, our friends rather, at the Finnish Long Drink. Growing in popularity and taking America by storm for good reason. It is delicious. It is refreshing. you got to check it out. If you're 21 plus only as an alcoholic beverage, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Now, I neglected to do this at the top of the last hour, so let me make sure that I get it in. A Fox News alert. The Dow shedding 232 points today, closing about an hour ago out on Wall Street at 32,656. Now, from time to time, Here on the show, we cover crime in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. That's where our show is based. Even though I've been traveling in New York, California, I'll be in Florida later in the week. But we're based in D.C., and typically it's because we are following federal politics, Congress, the White House, the courts, etc. But sometimes local government in D.C. is so bad and so insane And it is our nation's capital city that we can't help but notice and comment on it. And there actually is now a federal component to this as well, which I'll get to in a second. But we've told you about what the D.C. City Council has been up to. It's crazy. Carjackings have shot into the stratosphere over the last couple of years and the city council decided to reduce criminal penalties for crimes, including carjackings, including illegal gun possession. Right? These are the anti-gun people, right? Common sense gun reforms, they say. And then they want to reduce the penalties for breaking gun laws. Same people in the D.C. city council. They were concerned about struggling tourism numbers. They wanted to increase tourism, so they hiked taxes on hotels. That was their big solution. It's just galaxy brain stuff. Big, big brain energy from these people. And, of course, we've had all leftists wringing their hands about how democracy is under attack, right? So they decided, let's allow everyone to vote in Washington, D.C., including non-citizens, illegal immigrants, and foreign diplomats and spies. So for the D.C. elections, we just passed this law. They say it's now implemented. If you're voting for mayor or city council, if you are an illegal immigrant that gets bussed here, like just a few weeks ago to D.C. from Texas, let's say, congratulations, you can vote. 
if you're a, let's say, cultural attache at the embassy of any number of hostile foreign governments, you're a spy from Russia, from China, from Cuba, whatever. You can now vote in D.C.'s elections. <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, you would think that these foreign spies who hate America will happily vote in favor of every member of this city council, the ones at least who are voting for this nonsense. I saw that there's a local news outlet, DCist, in Washington. They had a story. A bill passed by the D.C. Council allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections is drawing fire from congressional Republicans, but it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea. It's a bad one. It's a terrible idea. And there are a handful, yes, a handful of blue jurisdictions, deep, deep, deep blue jurisdictions around the country that have moved in this direction to allow just anyone physically present to vote. And I know that people say it's for democracy. Nonsense. And now our nation's capital, that's the new local law on the books. Meanwhile, the murder rate continues to climb. It has been a rough couple of weeks. I saw murders are up, what, 40 or 45 percent now? It's really bad in D.C. There is a Twitter feed run by a guy named Alan Henney. And all he does is track D.C. crime. And I occasionally check the feed. It's honestly too depressing. But I've been watching it recently, and I was writing a piece for townhall.com, so I was just sort of looking. These are from the last two days, and it's not even all of them. Okay, just listen. This is a, this is a sampling of crime in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, in the last two days. Double stabbing. At the McDonald's on 18th Street Northwest. By the way, this is not the McDonald's that closed at the hockey arena, the basketball arena, because of crime and vagrancy and fights and drugs. This is a different McDonald's that's still open, double stabbing there. A woman was stabbed in the chest and a man in the arm. Female suspect fled on foot. Here's another one. Shots fired at police. That was 14th Street, Northwest D.C. Police were tracking a suspect into an alley, and more than one shot was fired at the cops. Here's another one. Another shooting. Third Street at K Street. That's the intersection, northeast D.C. Man shot several times. Possible carjacking related. Connected to another investigation. Here's another one. Armed carjacking. Gale Street, northeast D.C. Toyota Camry with Maryland tags taken at gunpoint. Here's another one. Pistol whipped and robbed. 7th Street, D.C., Southwest. Suspects, two men with guns, beat and robbed the victim, fled on foot. Here's another one. D.C. police investigating armed robberies. Georgia Avenue Northwest and 14th Street and V Street Northwest. Five male suspects armed with, uh, armed with rifles and handguns. Here's another one. Porsche carjacked. DuPont Circle. It's a nice Tony area. DuPont Circle, a Porsche carjacked. Six suspects with guns. Carjacked a gray Porsche SUV. DC tags. 
19th Street and N Street Northwest. And those are from the last two days, and it's not even close to all of them. I'm just giving you a few of the examples. Absolute, endless chaos in Washington, D.C. In fact, Wyatt, who is like our D.C. crime reporter practically, he lives in the district. I live in Virginia. You're not going to have me living in the district these days. He lives in the district. Wyatt, you were saying that there was a shooting a block from you. You heard the gunshots. Was this yesterday? Yeah, he was telling me it was yesterday. Like, right near his building. That is scary. And it's not like, oh, we're just cherry-picking a random incident to make it personal to the show. This is every day. And then the other thing, Wyatt, if I'm not mistaken, you were telling me, people, we saw that the D.C. mayor had put out, like, oh, you can come if you if you own a certain type of car that are getting carjacked and stolen all the time, you can come get a steering wheel lock for free from the D.C. government. That's her big solution. The other issue is they're stealing tires right off of people's cars, right? And not just in far-flung crime-infested areas, like right on Capitol Hill. You said that you, like, you see this regularly, right? Yeah, he's talking in my ear like Mr. Snurdly, back on Russia's show. The answer is yes, by the way. This is every day. This is in our nation's capital. And it's like I'm not exaggerating the problem. Now, the reason I bring all of this up is now there's a showdown. I mean, first of all, first of all, I think that we should all care. Right. I recognize the vast majority of this audience does not live in or around Washington, D.C. So it might sound like we're, you know, hyper local and focusing on a problem in our own backyard. I mean, true to an extent. But this is the capital city of the United States of America. And so I think we should all care about it. It's something that we ought to pay attention to. Then you've got this interesting sort of uh, back and forth, this tug of war, where you've got home rule from the D.C. City Council and the government and the mayor and that sort of thing. And then you do have congressional oversight, and Congress can actually impose its will on some of this stuff. And so that is setting up what could be something of an interesting showdown. The New York Times has a headline, Biden could face veto test over contentious D.C. crime bill. So the House Republicans have already passed a bill basically overturning what the city council has done. But you've got the mayor and others lobbying Senate Democrats to not let Congress horn in on this. Basically saying, Congress, keep your hands off. We've got this, except they don't. Right? It is an ongoing, abject embarrassment and failure. That's what we're seeing from D.C. local government. By the way, they want to make this place a state. Let me just remind you. They want to make this medium to large-sized city, total basket case, a state. They only want to do that. They can complain that it's taxation without representation. That's another reason, by the way, that some of these leftists justify letting illegal immigrants vote, because they might be paying some taxes, so they deserve uh, representation. Like, oh, they've earned the right to vote by being here illegally. Or a foreign spy? Like, absolutely not. Get out of here. But that's the argument that they try to use. Suddenly they're against taxes. Notice that. You've got a bunch of leftists who only object to taxes when it's 
strategic as part of some talking point to justify a power grab or an expansion of government. They love taxing people. They love confiscating their wealth. But if they can say, oh, representation, you know, you have no representation, but we're taxing people, taxation without representation, it's so unjust, suddenly they're like, you know, Minutemen with their muskets for about two seconds. These people want to become, and the mayor is out there, D.C. officials endorsing D.C. statehood. The Senate has a bill on this. They want to do it exclusively for political reasons. The Democrats don't actually believe that D.C. should be a state. They believe that they should have two more Senate seats. That's it. It's power. That's it. End of story. That's what's going on. I mean, the fact that it's as bad as it is, I think, is a very dramatic repudiation of the idea of making this uh, this place a state. It shouldn't be. But now that Republicans in the House of Representatives have taken their step and D.C. government is lobbying hard for the Democrats not to go along with it in the Senate, the headline that I mentioned, New York Times, Biden could face veto test over contentious D.C. crime bill. Let me read from the story. Republicans in Congress moved closer on Monday to blocking changes to the District of Columbia's criminal code, potentially setting up a politically charged veto fight with President Biden as the party works to capitalize on fears of rising crime in the run-up to the 2024 campaign. Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, told reporters as the Senate returned that he would join Republicans in voting to overturn the new D.C. sentencing law that reduces penalties for a variety of criminal offenses, leaving them, meaning Republicans, just one vote short of forcing the bill out of Congress and to the White House. Now, will they get that one more vote from a Democrat in the Senate to then force the hand of Joe Biden? What would he do? His base will be adamantly against him signing a bill like this. D.C. government, adamantly opposed. The activists, the defund the police people, all of them will be breathing down his neck. But he's trying to pretend that he's not soft on crime. In fact, he's trying to pretend that he's tough on crime. And yet, would he find a way to excuse vetoing a bill like this if it were bipartisan? I think that would be a fun dilemma for him to have to deal with. But the question is, will there be another Democrat who will sign on to this in the Senate? So, yes, it's a disgrace and a debacle in its own right on its face in D.C. itself. But now there's this federal congressional component and a potential political headache for Biden. Which is why I wanted to underscore it, bring it to your attention, because it's not even really a side note. It's not tangential. I think crime and law and order, again, will be a central issue to next year's election. And and here's a chance for Republicans to maybe draw some political blood. Unfortunately, there's way too much real blood running in the streets of D.C. because of these absolutely nuts, indefensible crime policies that they're making worse. They're not making like real progress. They're making progressive progress, which is making matters worse. We'll see what Congress does. Any other Democrats in the Senate want to raise your hand? Then it would be the president's move. Ball in his court. I guess we'll see. Happy hour continues with perhaps happier subjects. When we come back on The Guy Benson Show. 
Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the happy hour, we talked earlier with Andy McCarthy about this Supreme Court hearing today, the oral arguments on the student loan, quote, forgiveness scheme, this regressive bailout. And boy, the left has been just going crazy over this. And they're just they're wrong on basically all of the merits. They had a big rally today, screaming and shrieking at the Supreme Court. One of the shriekers was Randy Weingarten. Teachers Union boss, who's just a professional Democrat. That's what she exists to do. Boy, she had a lot to say. Cut 29. And so that is why President Biden said we are going to deal with that as we deal with the end of the pandemic. We're going to deal with that. We're not going to start student debt again without actually making a down payment of it. And the Secretary of Education has the right to do it. And frankly, And this is what really pisses me off. During the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting. And we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting. And we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it. The corporations challenge it. The student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair, and that is what we are fighting as well when we say, cancel student debt. This is about the people, and it is about the people's future, and it is about all of your futures. I am so sorry you had to listen to that. Wow. That was brutal. She's wrong basically on every point. And by the way, Congress passed the other things. This was done unilaterally. It's bad policy, but it's also illegal. Congress didn't do it. Does she know anything? I wish she had that kind of conviction and passion about keeping kids in school during the pandemic. We remember how that went, don't we? You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy Hour, Guy Benson Show. Welcome back from Orange County, California today. GuyBensonShow.com podcast, always free. Joining us now from our D.C. studios, our home base, getting ready for his appearance on the panel with special report and Brett Bayer this evening, is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast, longtime cocaine Mitch Guy. Josh, always good to have you here. Well, it's good to be here, Guy. Come all the way down here thinking I'm going to catch up with my good friend, Guy. I sit yeah. down in his studio in absence. Mm-hmm. Absolute absence. That's right. Well, I knew you were coming, so I got to the <laughs> other coast. Right? It takes so a lot wages. to get me to come to California, but, you know, <laughs> you're it. Uh, so l- let's talk about this. I just apologized to our audience in the last segment for playing this yeah. soundbite. I'm going to play it again anyway, because yes. if you haven't heard it, You need to hear it again. The audience might have missed it. If you're just tuning in, this was one of the many hysterical harangues outside the Supreme Court earlier as the court's making a decision on what seems to be an obviously illegal power grab from Biden on student loans. Randy Weingarten focused like a laser beam on, like, adult student debt, uh, screaming at the top of her lungs. Here's part of it, cut 29. And so that is why... President Biden said we are going to deal with that as we deal with the end of the pandemic. 
We're going to deal with that. We're not going to start student debt again without actually making a down payment of it. And the Secretary of Education has the right to do it. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, during the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting. And we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting. And we helped them. And it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it. The corporations challenge it. The student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair. And that is what we are fighting as well when we say, cancel student debt. This is about the people, and it is about the people's future, and it is about all of your futures. I just need like, <laughs> some Advil and a big, big sip of water there, Josh. Um, all right, so here's the oh, thing. Oh, man. I made the point in our last segment, just briefly, because I don't even, you know, where do you begin with something like that? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to need something she was tougher saying, than water. I know that. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little uh, Kentucky bourbon. So she was talking about during the pandemic when businesses were hurting and small businesses, et cetera, we helped them and no one challenged it. That was done, if I'm not mistaken, Josh, through the legislative process, passed Congress, signed by the president, decisions were made using the actual constitutionally prescribed order. This is not that. And I just I had an inkling, like a little fleeting memory. So I Googled it during the break. Do you recall that Randy Weingarten was a U.S. government teacher? (laughs) I didn't know that. She taught U.S. government and history. (laughs) That's incredible. Of course. I mean, what you're talking about is entirely right. I mean, what she's referring to is is PPP, right? The loans that were given Mm -hmm. to small businesses. And it was passed in something called the CARES Act in April of 2020. Uh, that was voted on and passed unanimously, I might add, uh, by the United States Senate, United States Congress, and signed into law. What they're talking about here with student loans is a, a $400 billion expenditure of taxpayer money without so much as a peep out of the legislative branch in our government. And I don't think you have to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you have to be a legal scholar to figure out the differences between the articles and the Constitution huh. and how this is flagrantly and not even close to the line of constitutionality. Yeah, I mean, here's the other thing. During COVID, we forcibly, the government forcibly shut down businesses and did not allow them to run their businesses and would not allow people to do their jobs. It was not legal at the time because of COVID. And so you had a bunch of people and businesses losing everything. So we got together on a bipartisan basis and said, this is not right. We've got to help some of these businesses. We can't have the entire economy wrecked forever. Let's Now, it would have been a lot easier if we didn't have all the debt that we already had, right? It would be less costly long term. But this mm-hmm. was like a consensus across the country. People need help. And so it went through the process. It was passed by Congress overwhelmingly, some of it unanimously. It went to the president, President Trump's desk. He signed it. That's the way laws are made. That's the way money gets spent in this country. We're talking here, some estimates are upwards of a trillion dollars, ultimately, this Mm -hmm. thing will cost for a pre-existing problem, by the way, 
that people entered into not because the government forced them to do anything. There was not some government apparatchik, you know, at the barrel of a gun saying you must take out these loans or else. People did it of their own volition. They signed the paperwork. They signed a contract. And now they're trying to pretend like there's some sort of analogy between the, the process of getting PPP passed and now this, like, waving of the wand. I mean, it's just so intellectually insulting on every level. Like, you can make your case for why student debt should be forgiven. And by the way, you can make that case before Congress and have a vote. But what we just heard there was absolutely dishonest and <laughs> Very grating to boot. Well, it's those dulcet tones, guy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you weren't sold by that. Uh, Give that tone. woman a radio show. Oh my goodness! Can Three you hours a day you to listen. Oh, the Randy Weingarten show. <laughs> it is, but you're right. It's so intellectually dishonest. It's completely absurd. But it it's also goes hand in hand with what you hear a lot out of the left. You know, it's law be damned. It's basically this is the way I feel, and that's the way that the law ought to work. And Never mind the millions of people who decided to go get vocational educations or trade schools or something like that. Or pay off uh, their loans or not yeah, go to college. Who, who, yeah, yeah, right. Or all of those things who are now in their social contract, unbeknownst to them, having to pay for a bunch of people to go get liberal arts degrees. I mean, it's mm -hmm. completely outrageous. People who make a lot more money than they do in many cases, by they, the way. Well, and that's what the studies show. I mean, look, the, you've seen numerous studies show the people who are the primary beneficiaries of this policy are not. You're sort of downtrodden, poor, without opportunities. These are no. both people who are going, going to college. No, they're, the ones, they're the ones paying for it. Right. For, like, the right. professional class of college-educated, disproportionately whiter, wealthier people that, yeah. I mean, yes, a, a key voting block for the Democrats. But yeah. they're but trying— there's the key. Yep. But the, the thing is, they're trying—and and this is, I think, a, an important political point that maybe you can vamp on a little bit. They're trying to run this— through their normal class warfare prism, right? Yeah. Just like like shove it into the machine and have all the outrage came you know come flying out. It doesn't really work with the actual facts this time, where you've yeah. got non college graduates with lower lifetime income capacity being forced to pay for the so called forgiveness of loans taken out by wealthier people. It's like right. reverse Robin Hood anti-class warfare stuff but they're like they don't change or modulate their tone at all they just hope people don't really pay attention to the difference or the details well and their base is no longer the working class america right so they, no. they, they really don't care i mean their, their base is full of liberal elites in metropolitan enclaves around this country primarily on the coast and that's who they seek to satisfy with all of that and i don't think for a second that biden actually thinks that this is something they can do i mean this was basically a, a, an executive order written crayon on the back of a napkin that was handed in and now i mean we have to go through the indignity of the supreme court actually pontificating on it this doesn't deserve 10 seconds of time in any court yeah, in this pelosi country. said it wasn't legal pelosi's like this oh he can't do this <laughs> It's not. I mean, you recall they tried to do the same thing with with rent. Remember? I mean, yep. it was like they they did this whole deal where it, the president now declares you no longer have to pay your rent. Okay, all right. Well, that I mean, that sounds absolutely terrific. But it's just the political benefit is what he's he's seeking to try to create a fight and then align himself with this liberal elitist point of view that somehow you know gets a, a generation of. Uh, 
you know, progressive leftists all up in arms on it. And, and the thing that's most galling is when they call it a civil rights issue, oh which my is gosh. just completely get out of here. absurd. Get get out of here. Yeah, this this uh, white lawyer really needs <laughs> like a lower income, like working 70 hour a week blue collar worker paying off some of his student loans. That's a real civil rights champion issue right there. And it's the, a the fight thing, of our time. A fight of our time. <laughs> I, the, the other thing, Josh, is when you kind of look at the the optics of it, I think the Democrats, I guess they believe that this is ultimately like, you know, a winner for them because some of the polling shows that on its face it's a popular uh, program. But there's also a lot of polling that showed when you introduce a single trade-off mm-hmm. into the argument, then it goes from support to opposition like instantly because – Ultimately, people don't realize that it's going to raise taxes and be inflationary and be regressive and mostly benefit wealthy people. And the list goes on. I'm not really sure this is the winner that they think it is, but clearly they do, because what you just described, that dynamic is exactly right. And if it were a Republican, here's the thing. If it were a Republican doing this cynically, all of the smart set would be wringing their hands about the end of democracy and the attack on our, our norms and the rule of law. Here's a Republican knowingly abusing his authority, knowing that it'll get struck down by the courts, then he will then attack the institution of the courts for political benefit to rile people up because he wants to just sort of score political points. And if that means shredding the Constitution and attacking our institutions and norms and playing dumb, I mean, they would be so apoplectic if this were the playbook that a Republican oh, yeah. president were following, but it's a Democrat, so it's like for the right reasons. So everyone's sort of <laughs> pretending like this is like you know sort of sort of okay, and that's why they had their big you know gal pal meeting, I guess, at the Supreme Court today, starring Randy Weingarten and others. I mean, you, and we all have to sit around and watch people earnestly pontificate about whether or not this is constitutional. And here's the, the lawyer for the government and the solicitor. They're going to be discussing all these important issues. It's nonsense. It's unconstitutional. Throw it out and move on. But I think you make a good point about the politics of it. One thing I noticed towards the end of last year when they introduced all of this, um, you know, your progressive left thought it was a political winner. But there was a bunch of candidates on the Democratic side who had skin of the game at that point, And none of them really came out for it. In fact, yeah, you had senators ran like, away from it. Yeah, like Catherine Cortez Masto won re-election in Nevada. She was like first out of the gate to say, I think this is a bad idea. So I'm not sure that all Democrats, particularly those in swing states, think this kind of policy benefits them. Yeah, but when you have such a compelling and emotionally attractive (laughs) spokesperson as Randy Weingarten, I mean, the, the siren song, the allure is, you know indescribable and certainly inescapable and and last point on this as i mentioned sort of going into break if she had ever channeled half of that energy or passion to stop actively harming kids back in the classroom uh things would be in a lot better shape in the country right now but that's not what she's here for she's here to be a hard-knuckled partisan actor and like the well-being of children is nowhere on the depth chart when it comes to the uh, the priorities for Randy Weingarten, and God knows what she was teaching some of those kids in her U.S. Oh. government class. I mean, you sort of just you just sort of shudder. Uh, Josh, very quickly before we let you go, I know you've got special report coming up. I want to let you do your homework for the panel. I wonder, you know, 
Ron DeSantis is out with the new book. It's at number one. He's going to go on a book tour. Apparently, he's going, strangely, to places like Iowa and New Hampshire uh, to sell the book, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Um, The polling recently seems to be moving Trump's direction on a national level, Republican, uh, you know, the Republican electorate. What do you make of that? Is Trump, like, running away with this thing all of a sudden? Or is, you know, is he benefiting from some sort of dynamic? What are you seeing here? I think there's going to be a huge campaign. You know, I think there was a rush for all of us to sort of conclude either that you know it was definitely going to be Trump renominated, or it was definitely going to be a time for a change, and DeSantis is that change agent. I really think this is going to be a hard nosed campaign. Of, of all the campaigns that Trump has run, three now primarily, you know, his primary and general in sixteen, and then the general in twenty. I think this one's going to be the most difficult, and I think this one is going to be going on the longest. I, I, you're going to see a lot of ebbs and flows. People and the Republican primary electorate really appreciated the fact that he went to Ohio and beat President Biden to do it. It was kind of the thing that you used to love about mm-hmm. Donald Trump is that he figured out how to go be a voice and an advocate for people that the government was often overlooking. And I, th- I think it, that was really kind of the first big campaign move he's had since he announced in November. So I think there's a residual bounce with that. That being said, there is a ton of twists and turns before we – I mean, DeSantis isn't even an announced candidate yet. You got it probably Nikki wouldn't Haley. be for a couple months. Right, and probably won't be for a while. But you've got a couple of other candidates that are entering the fray, Nikki Haley and, and others. And so I, I just think that this conversation is going to be much more textured – and much more dynamic than anybody's predicting up to this point. Yeah, I'm excited for the debates to start and then the fall. I mean, long way to go here, but it it is certainly already pretty captivating. Josh Holmes will leave it there for now. Founding partner, Cavalry LLC. Check out the Ruthless podcast. Uh, It's always, always great fun and a good listen. Josh, appreciate it. Thank you very much, Guy. Love being here. Home Stretch, next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch, a shorty. So we went long there with Josh Holmes on the Guy Benson Show from California, heading to Chicago tonight, doing the show from the Windy City tomorrow. We'll have some election results from Chicago. That'll be interesting. So hope to talk to you then. In the time that we have left here, I just wanted to mention some of the food and beverage-related items that we teased yesterday. Number one, we had our team dinner on Friday night in New York City. Soup dumplings, Chinese restaurant, really good. The dumplings were awesome. And Quiet Wyatt wanted to note for the record that he is no longer the picky eater that he believes he has been pigeonholed to be on the program previously, expanding horizons. That is definitely true. He's still a no on sushi, though, so there's still some progress to be made, but I will give him credit. He's absolutely right about that. And we had just a very fun time, just the four of us hanging out for a while. Talked a little bit of business, but, of course, a lot of nonsense. You can only imagine the four of us together. And then the other members of the team, the other three, they all had lunch that same day at this place. It's an Italian sandwich shop. In Midtown, just off Times Square, it's like 8th Avenue and I want to say 46th, long Italian name that I'm not even going to try to recall off the top of my head. But it's like this fresh-made focaccia bread with different toppings, and it was as advertised. The sandwich was like 20 bucks, but it's enormous. I cut it in half and had half a sandwich each day, back-to-back days for lunch. Freshly sliced prosciutto, homemade fresh mozzarella, Sliced fresh turkey, various uh, sauces and olive oil and 
seesaw is just incredible. It's probably something that I can't indulge in too often. It's not like the healthiest lunch. Oh, but it was good. Something that Christine recommended that wasn't terrible. I mean, I, I have to give her that. Speaking of giving Christine things, I gave her a bottle of wine, the whole bottle of wine, which makes me clearly an enabler. Uh, but I mentioned that I got stuck in the elevator last week at my hotel for almost an hour, almost missed the show. But thank God they got me out. And for my trouble, when I got back to the room, they were very apologetic, wrote a very nice note, and had a pretty good bottle of red wine waiting for me. I couldn't travel with it. So I was like, yeah, what do I do? I'm not going to leave it here. That'd be ungracious. So I said, I know who could use this. So a free bottle of Mama's Juice for Mama. Cookie Christine will see how she likes it. It's probably gone, actually, if I had to guess. Gone. Monday night for Mama. It's possible. Back here tomorrow from Chicago. Guy Benson Show, thank you for listening. Have a great night. We'll talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.